title for us is this, Simple Reminders, Five Truths from 1 John. That's what we're looking at this morning. So I'll give you a moment to get there. Out of respect for the reading of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to stand in your living room or wherever you may be because no matter what is happening or where we're worshiping, God's Word still deserves our respect, I believe. So I'm going to invite you to read with your eyes as I read aloud from the book of 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to it the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. You may be seated and let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the songs that we were just led in. Songs that reminded us of the fact that Your grace is enough and that You are great that there is no God in heaven beside you. We thank you for who you are and what you've done. And as we endeavor to learn and grow from this text this morning and learn, as I've already mentioned, five truths from the book of 1 John, we pray, God, that you'll make our hearts and our minds pliable, soft, and receptive. We pray for your glory and all the growth that's going to take place here today and online wherever people may be listening and we pray it all to your glory and our good and in Jesus name amen simple reminders five truths from first john when we're facing times that leave us with more questions than we have answers when we're facing times that test our faith i find that it's best to go back to the tenets of our faith, to sure it up, to strengthen it, to clarify it, to guarantee that it's in the proper place of priority. Because no matter what might be happening in our lives or around our lives, in our world or in the world around us, one thing is certain, and that is this, our faith needs to remain strong. Our faith needs to remain pure. So I have five things, five truths, in fact, that I want to share with all of us from the book of 1 John this morning. And if we find ourselves in 1 John chapter 1, the first truth that I would like to share with us is this. We have a real Christ. That's our first point this morning. We have five of them. We have a real Christ. In the first chapter of 1 John, we come across important language, graphic language, explicit language. Language that is written the way that it is because there was something happening at that time that demanded it be so. What was happening was a movement called Gnosticism. 
Gnosticism was an elite kind of theological persuasion. They believed, Gnostics did, that you had to be, so to speak, in the know. You had to have a sort of spiritual knowledge or enlightenment in order to be accepted. And that's what really mattered, to them anyway. So they were called Gnostics because the Greek word gnosko means to know. One of the features of Gnostic teaching was that Jesus wasn't actually physical. He only appeared to be physical because the Gnostics believed that the physical realm was evil, but the spiritual realm was good. So Jesus couldn't have been physical in order for their belief system to be genuine. They had a problem with creation, and certainly they had a problem with the body in particular. But that's exactly what John is combating here. Listen again to the phrases that John chooses to use in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and following. If you'll look at it with your eyes as I read again, this is what it says. He's referring to Jesus, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And in verse 2, he continues, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. Look at some of the phrases and words that John chooses to use in those introductory verses. We have heard. We have seen with our eyes. Thirdly, he says, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. Listen, church. What John is saying is that the apostles had a visible, audible, and tangible experience with Jesus. In other words, Jesus wasn't imaginary. He wasn't only spirit. He was not only divine and God. He was also human. The Westminster Confession, a document written some 400 years ago, says it this way, that Jesus was, quote, very God and very man, yet one Christ. Jesus, while he was in his human incarnate form, he was still the second person of the Trinity and therefore divine. But he was also human, not partially, but entirely. You see, we don't believe in a Jesus that was 50% human and 50% divine. We believe in a Jesus that was 100% divine and 100% human. I love what John says in the Gospel of John. You may remember this from many studies weeks ago. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, church, this is why he came, to be heard, to be seen, to be handled, to be treasured, to be touched. This is the first of our five truths from the book of 1 John. We have a real Christ, not an imaginary Christ, a Christ who left heaven and came to the earth and battled all the same things that we battle, hunger and thirst. He became tired. He became weary. He rested, and yes, he battled things like viruses. He, in his human form, saw his way through every trial and every temptation, 
and conquered it all to the glory of the Father and to the good of those who would place their faith in him. We serve and we have a real Christ. That's chapter 1 of 1 John. Secondly, as Christians in this world, we have not only a real Christ, but we have a real fight. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2 and read with your eyes, as I read aloud, verses 15 through 18. This is what God's Word says. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God, look at it, abides forever. Verse 18 says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And therefore we know that it is the last hour. So we are looking at our second truth from the book of 1 John now, and it is this. We have a real fight. 1 John says, do not love the world in verse 15. It's not an indicative which would be a teaching meant to inform and educate us. Instead, it's not an indicative. It's an imperative. It's, in other words, a command. It's something we're meant to follow and obey. He says, do not love the world. That's a command. That's an order. This imperative, this command, is grounded in two reasons, John says. First, we aren't to love the world because a love for the world and a love for God is incompatible. We aren't to love the world because a love for the world and a love for God is incompatible. Look at it again with your eyes. He says, if anyone loves the world, he says, the love of the Father is not in him. We all have people in our lives who say that they love us when their actions scream quite the opposite message. At the end of the day, it's our actions, not our words, that justify us. Our words only justify us in so much as they are in line with our actions. What John is teaching us here is that someone who loves the world cannot possibly love the Father. These two things are incompatible. Secondly, we aren't to love the world because it is fading away. First, we aren't to love the world because a love of the world and a love for the Father are incompatible. But secondly, we aren't to love the world because the world is fading away. Look at verse 17. The world is passing away, John says, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We all have people in our lives that challenge us when it comes to the priority of loving God over the world. Christians will live eternally. That is the distinguishing factor here. Those who aren't believers and the world itself will not continue for eternity. So grounded in these two reasons, namely, 
we are to love God because the love of the world is incompatible with that and the world is not lasting, we are told not to love the world. Grounded on these two reasons that John gives us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and following. But, but are we getting mixed messages here? Think about it. Do we love the world or do we hate the world? Uh, does God love the world or hate the world? Do we love the world or do we fight for the world? Or fight against the world? Well, the answer to this question is simply addressed in the definition of the word world. John uses it in a variety of ways and, and context and its usage is always key. Think about it. When John says in John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes would not perish but have eternal life, that's Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. And he was saying that no one was included or excluded by virtue of their nationality or ethnicity. In that sense, God so loves the world. But here, we're talking about a system, an anti-God, anti-Christ system that is diluting the severity of the gospel, the specialness of Christ, and the purpose of God's people of being light and salt in a dark and tasteless age. We aren't to love that system. We aren't to fight for that system. We're to hate that system. And we are to fight against that system though we are to love anyone and everyone that we possibly can. Jesus himself said, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Church, God's word is commanding us and calling us to live lives that are different from those in this fallen system. This system that is manipulated and used by Satan for his own purposes. We must decide. We have decisions to make, convictions to hold to, especially in a season like this. Joshua said it this way, choose this day whom you will serve. James said it this way, friendship with the world is enmity with God. In James chapter 4, verse 4, we need to be ready to fight. Fight for what is biblical. Fight for what is sacred. Fight for what is orthodox. We need to be able and ready to fight for what honors our God and our King and our Christ. We have a real fight ahead of us. And why? Well, not only because of the two points that I gave you beforehand, but also because of what John says in verse 18. Look at the text if you would, please. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 tells us that we have a real fight ahead of us because, he says, children... It's a term, or, uh, a term of endearment for the church. Children, it is the last hour. And as we have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Now you see that phrase there, children, it is the last hour. In the Greek, the word last hour, or the two words last hour, is eskate ora. Eskate means the last hour. And aura means time or hour. 
So that's the, the phrase that we get eschatology from, the study of last things. Now, I know many people in our church and many people who are familiar with our church and, and support our ministry are really buzzing right now about eschatology. Every time there's a tsunami or an earthquake or a virus, as the coronavirus going around the world is occurring, they say, Jesus is coming in the clouds. The study of last things deals with the unraveling of multiple events and prophecies that we find in the Bible relating to the end times. And they tie those things, current events, to the prophecies. And I think they're right to do so. But I want you to consider a few things. I want you to consider three verses I'm going to share with you right now. Number one, Mark chapter 13, verse 33. Mark chapter 13, verse 33. It says, be on your guard and keep awake. Because you do not know when the time will come. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. Say that again. Matthew 24, 36. Jesus says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Finally, Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. Revelation 22, verse 7 says, behold, I am coming soon. This is Jesus speaking. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy in this book. What does he say in the beginning of that verse? I am coming soon. Listen, this is the point that I want to make. Some of you may be asking, what's the point? Well, are we in the end times? I answer to that question emphatically without hesitation, yes. We are in the end times, but according to the New Testament apostles, we've been in the end times since Jesus Christ ascended back to heaven after his resurrection. It was the end times as far as the apostles were concerned. Look again at verse 18 of chapter 2. It is the last hour. Some of you look around and you say there's been an earthquake or there's another disease or, or, or the government seemed to be collapsing. There must be. An unraveling of the times and the coming of our Christ, to which I say yes, absolutely. But there has been for years and years and years. And if you think that there's anything particular happening today that wasn't happening then, you're wrong. The truth is, we don't know when Christ is coming. And anyone, I mean anyone, who says otherwise is lying for popularity, money, or both. No one knows when Christ is coming. But although we don't know when he is coming, to the glory of God, we do know that Christ is coming. And to that we say amen. But we don't know when. And that is to say, in the midst of the world falling down around us, you and I must be ready. We must be awake, we must be alert, and we must be able to pray with a clear conscience and with all our heart, even so, come Lord Jesus, come. Before he comes, though, you and I, we have a real fight against the world that we must fight. Thirdly, we learn a truth in the letter of 1 John, that is this, we have a real family. That's the third truth that we learn from the letter of John. We have a real Christ. We have a real fight. And thirdly, we have a real family. Let's read one of the most beautiful texts that I think is in the entire New Testament. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, get this, purifies himself as he is pure. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Or as the Good News Bible translates this verse, see how much the Father has loved us. His love is so great that we are called God's children and so in fact we are. What a beautiful reminder of the fact that all of us who have placed faith in Jesus are the children of God. Church, regardless of whether or not the world is falling apart, if there are tsunamis, diseases, locusts, invasions, or just a downward spiral of the market, who cares? We've been adopted into God's family. That is a truth that cannot be revoked. That is a truth that cannot fall apart or be robbed of us. We have been adopted into God's family by faith in his one and only son, the one who has never been adopted or needed to be. Speaking about adoption, the Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What an absolute blessing that we aren't only a part of the kingdom, but we're also kin. What a blessing that we aren't only servants, but also sons and daughters. What a blessing that we aren't only redeemed, but also used to redeem others with the gospel. If we have placed our faith and trust in Christ, the one and only Son of God who's never had to be adopted, then we become family through adoption. And that's a truth, a fact, and a statement, an assertion that we can't avoid to downplay without serious consequence to our spiritual health. Church, we are God's children, and all the world is God's creation, but not all the world is God's children. Our Holy Father isn't only holy, a high and lifted up, unique, special, and unmatched Holy Father, but our Holy Father is also our dad, close and approachable and intimate. But every family has a family resemblance, and so it is with our family of God. Look again at verse 3 of 1 John chapter 3. Verse 3 says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Every family has a family resemblance. The root of the word pure here in chapter 3, verse 3, is the root of the word holy. 
Everyone who thus hopes in him lives a pure life, a holy life, because God is pure or God is holy. That's what John is trying to convey to us. We must, as the children of God, live lives that show the family resemblance. Consider these verses. I'm going to read them off to you. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. Leviticus 19, verse 2. You shall be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Matthew 5, 48. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. 1 Peter 1.14. You get it. You get it from that text in 1 John 3.3. And you get it from these texts, Leviticus 19.2 and Matthew 5.48 and 1 Peter 1.14. You get it. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have a problem with regular, ongoing, habitual sin. Sin breaks our fellowship and our relationship with our Heavenly Father, who's given us expectations to live by. Not that we might win our way into His family, but because we are indeed already members of His family by grace, and we are called to live with a family resemblance. Remember what He says in verse 1. What kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called His children. That's given to us. That is a gracious and blessed gift. We can't earn that. We can't achieve that. But once we are in His family, there is the great expectation that we would live with that family resemblance. We have a very real family. We have a real Christ. We have a real fight. We have a real family. And fourthly, we have a real love. This is in chapter 4. If you'll bounce over to chapter 4, verse 7. I'm going to read this entire two paragraphs very quickly. This is what it says. Beloved, or loved ones, let us love one another because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Jumping down to verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever, there's that great word that appears so often in John's writings, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love, of, the love that God has for us, and, and God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. And by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Verse 19 says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 
he does he, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen and this commandment we have from him whoever loves God must also love his brother so in the fourth chapter of 1 John, we're talking about a very real love. We've reached one of the most popular chapters in the entire New Testament. And why wouldn't it be? It teaches us in verse 8 that God is love. It teaches us in verse 10 that Christ was a satisfying sacrifice for our sins. In verse 15, it teaches us that God abides in Christians by his Spirit. And that's not all, but you get the point. It's a great chapter. For this morning, I want us to focus on two things that remind us of the real love we have in Christ. First, God's love is seen in Jesus. In this is love, verse 10 says. Not that we love God, excuse me, verse 19 says, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son. We see so much here. We see that God's love is an active love. He loved us and sent his son. And of course, it's a sacrificial love because God gave what was so valuable to himself. Our love in turn should be active and it should be something that we are willing to do something about. Calvin wrote, the love of God then is not idle or inactive. Our love should be sacrificial. It's more than just a commitment or a convenience. But secondly, our love is seen in its, or God's love is seen in its timing. Again, verse 19 says, we love because God first loved us. You see, God's love always takes the priority. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes, In love God predestined us for the adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. You can't get any more priority than predestination. In love, Paul says, God predestined us to the adoption of Jesus Christ. And so John concludes this chapter about real love by saying that God's love compels us to love others. And if we don't love others while saying we know the love of God, and John says we're lying and we're not committed to the truth. Which leads us to our final point, and that is this. We have a real salvation. We have a real salvation. This is in 1 John chapter 5. If you'll look at it with your eyes, we're going to wrap up with verses 12 to 15. It reads like this, 1 John 5, 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. The security of our salvation In Christ, and as Christians who have trusted Christ, is something that God wants each and every one of us to know. To not doubt 
to not have fears over, to not have insecurities over, because doubt and fear aren't found where love is, John says in chapter 4. And God is love, and where God is with love and kindness and grace and mercy, there is security in what he has done on our behalf. Whoever has the Son has life, verse 12 says. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. That's John 3, 36. You can hear the similarities between those two verses. Church, this is the point. It's one thing to stand in a conviction that is complex and complicated. It's quite another to stand in something that is paralyzingly simple. You see, we aren't overwhelmed by a myriad of options we have. We are convicted by the simplicity of one. If Jesus, then life. If not, then no life. God has not given us what we call the exclusivity of the gospel in order to be offensive or hurtful. God has given us the exclusivity of the gospel, one, to ensure the simplicity of salvation and its message, and two, to make much of Jesus. Here's the point. Our security is something that God wants us to know. In verse 13, I write these things to you who believe so that you will know, K-N-O-W, that you have life. God wants us to know that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that He's the coming King, that He's the kind counselor, that He's the gentle healer, that He's the Savior. And there is no Savior like our Jesus. And when He saves, He saves completely. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. We have a real salvation. We have a lasting salvation. We have a guaranteed and secure salvation. Church, that is Christianity in the face of trials and tribulations, in the face of disaster and disease, in the face of everything that we could possibly imagine and would never wish upon our family, our friends, or even our enemies. In the face of all of this, we have a real Christ. We have a real fight to fight, a real family that we are a part of. We have a real love to comfort us. And we have a real salvation from now to eternity. When we're facing times that leave us with more uncertainty and questions than anything else, it's always best to go back to the simple reminders as we have this morning in 1 John to be reminded of the truths that can sure up and stabilize our faith so that no matter what we might face, we can do it with faith.